Jeremiah 14. Over the past decade or so, we have witnessed in society a pretty stark transition in society and culture. As our society moves from a philosophy, and, and, and this move began really right after World War II, from what we would call the philosophy of modernism, the idea that everything has to be proven, everything has to be tangible, everything has to be seen. Um, it was an outworking of enlightenment thinking and the science, scientific revolution. And there was a transition that happened after World War II, really even before that, into what we call today postmodernism. And postmodernism, this philosophy, uh, came about with a, a strong shift in mindset. One of the hallmarks of the shift in mindset is a movement away from the concept of truth in, in the capital T, truth type way. Um, we still hear the word truth bounce around quite a bit in our culture, but it's not defined the way it used to be defined. The idea of truth isn't quite today what it once was. If you talk to people about truth today, you will find that many, especially of the younger generations, do not believe that absolute truth exists. Rather, they believe that each person has their own truth, which they create. They believe truth is created, not discovered. They don't seek to find truth, transcendent truths which apply to everyone, because they don't believe these exist. Rather, they go seeking to find themselves. And as they find themselves, they create a framework of perceptions, of emotions, and experiences that they collect together into this thing that they try to call truth. Your truth, my truth, I'm going to speak my truth. Well, when someone says, I'm going to speak my truth, they're saying, I'm giving you my opinion. But that's not what they think. They say, I've compiled my perceptions, my emotions, my experiences, and this is truth to me. This is not a new thing. It's somewhat new in the sense of generational shifts in our culture and in our age. We are a culture that was, has been, uh, since its founding, uniquely founded upon truth. But it's not a new thing. In fact, throughout the book of Jeremiah, we've experienced a very similar idea, haven't we? Among the people that Jeremiah has been speaking to. Jeremiah has been speaking truth, and all throughout he said the pastors and the prophets and uh, the, the leaders, the princes, have all said, no, this is not true. Jeremiah is not true. We'll be fine. Uh, everything's going to be fine. Uh, the Lord is not going to judge us. And they have compiled this amalgamation of feelings, of experiences, of perceptions that they call truth, though it has no foundation in reality. So we've seen this. People taking their feelings and experiences and turning them into a false message of hope and optimism at a time when hope and optimism were not warranted in the land. And what we find is that for all the good intentions of people who do this, these aren't evil people. These aren't people that have bad or, 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 or tremendously perverse or negative intentions. What they've actually done is that they give people an utterly false understanding of who they are what they are, and how they actually relate to the world around them. 
This becomes very clear as we walk through the text today of Jeremiah 14 that this is going to happen. And then, of course, on the other end of things, we're going to apply it to our lives today. Beginning in verses, uh, verse 1, the Bible says this in Jeremiah 14. The Bible says, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth. We enter into a new word from God to Jeremiah, right? Uh, We're introduced here, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Again, we have no timetable. We do not know when along the, the path that this comes up, but we do know that it is concerning what the Bible calls the dearth. The word dearth here literally means restraint, and we'll find as we continue through the chapter that what the Bible is speaking of with this dearth is actually a drought, uh, a absence of water, a drought in the land of Judah. Now, a drought of rain would naturally be a circumstance where there is no rain uh, for an extended period of time, and this would produce any number of Problems. The crops do not grow without rain. The wells do not fill without rain. The rivers and lakes are low, and so uh, the capacity to fish changes if you don't have rain. We, we are, to a degree, um, somewhat incubated in our society from the deeper effects of, of, of droughts. We hear about droughts uh, that, that crop up in various places. California, there's often droughts there. Uh, where I grew up in Colorado, uh, there was many a year where we talk about that we're in a drought season. Um, even in, in this area, we've had um, some seasons where there has, particularly over the summer, been a general drought. This summer, we did not get a lot of rain for, for a, a longer period of time, and yet we're somewhat incubated from this because we have irrigation and we have uh, water towers and we have some of these things that allow us to get through these droughts without major consequences. But you can imagine um, that uh, without many of the technologies that we have today, um, the regions of Judea, of Samaria, of Galilee, of, of, of northern Israel, of, of southern Judah, that these regions would be uniquely susceptible, particularly farm regions, cattle and such, to drought. And Jeremiah writes these words to the nation at the time of this drought. And the significance of this in the land cannot be overstated. A drought in the land of Israel should be impossible at this time in history. By virtue of the promises of God upon the land to the nation of Israel, a drought should be impossible because God had promised that if they obeyed him, there would be no drought. And the fact that there is a drought in the land is significant for that reason. Obviously, the promises that God had given to the nation were conditional promises given to them on the condition that they obeyed the Lord. The blessings and cursings, right? If they obeyed, God would keep them from drought. If they disobeyed, they can expect drought. And this being the case, right? This is like a minister's dream. (laughs) This is Jeremiah's dream. Here they haven't been listening to him, and now there's this drought, for all of this time, the pastors and the princes and the, and the prophets have been saying, no, we're fine. There's nothing wrong. We're right with God. And here it is. Jeremiah finally has his tangible, irrefutable evidence that God is not happy, right? There's a drought in the land. He can point to chapter and verse that says this is not supposed to happen if you're right with God. Surely, in the midst of the drought, which is not supposed to ever happen, the people will realize, right? The people will finally realize that they're living in rebellion to the Lord and that the Lord is not pleased. 
Indeed, these are the promises that are given. I'll give you the context. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. Skip to verse 11. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, and in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give rain unto the land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. So there it is, right? There is the promise. Deuteronomy 28 verse 12, that if they're walking with the Lord, that the Lord would cause the heavens uh, to, to pour out rain in its proper season. But as we considered a couple of weeks ago, the faithfulness of God is a two-way street. He will be faithful to bless, but he will also be faithful to chasten those who are walking in opposition to him. So we continue in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, the Bible says this, but it shall come to pass... If thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe all that His commandments and His uh, all His commandments, excuse me, and His statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Skipping to verse twenty-three, and thy and thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed. So in God's faithfulness, we read that if the nation will not obey, the heavens will be made brass, the earth will be made iron, meaning things won't grow well, meaning there won't be rain. And more to the point, the rain of the land will be exchanged for powder and dust. Powder and dust, of course, um, the, the, if, if you've ever studied the particular time in the United States called the Dust Bowl, right? It was a time of overuse of the land, uh, of, of, um, of a lack of, of rain. And so in this particular state, uh, dirt and dust uh, uh, collected tremendously because uh, they, they had pulled up a lot of the, the plants and such, which did not which would, would keep the, the dirt in place, right? And then uh, there was a lack of rain, which would also help the dirt stay in place. So it was just dust everywhere and, and dirt everywhere. And that's the idea here, that powder and dust, that, that this is a drought. This is, these are drought conditions. And this is the reality of the experience of Judah in this time. So Jeremiah is writing at the time of this drought and seeking to appeal to the reality of the drought to get the nation's attention. So we continue in verse Verse 2 through 6, the Bible says this, Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languish. They are black unto the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem is gone up, and their nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. They came to the pits and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because the ground is chapped, for there was no rain in the earth. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yea, the hind also calved in the field and forsook it because there was no grass. The wild asses did stand in high places. They sniffed up the wind like dragons. Their eyes did fail because there was no grass. So here we find a description of the drought itself. People go to the water holes and the wells. 
but there is not water in them. The ground is chapped, uh, the, the Bible says, very dry and cracking, so that the earth was hard to plow, seeds would not take. The animals were giving birth, but there was no grass, so they would immediately abandon their young because there was no means by which to care for them. The donkeys sniffed in the wind to ascertain if they could smell grass coming from the direction that the wind was blowing, and they smelled no grass. The the wind that would carry the scent of the grass uh, for even great distances, and there was nothing in the wind that that even gave the grass, uh, there was any smell of grass. The grass was dead. It was gone. This was the reality of the situation. This is Jeremiah describing the drought conditions of the land of Judah. And it was related directly, as we'll find as we continue, to the spiritual state of the nation. Verses 7 through 9, the Bible says this, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee, O hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble. Why shouldst thou be as a stranger in the land and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Why shouldst thou be as a man astonied, as well as a man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. Very interesting. What we find as we get through verse 9 is that these first nine verses, Jeremiah begins by describing the drought. And the word of the Lord that comes to Jeremiah is actually initiated by a prayer of Jeremiah to the Lord. Jeremiah looks at the drought and he is deeply concerned by this drought. And the first context within which we see any any interaction between the Lord and Jeremiah is actually the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, not Jeremiah speaking to the Lord. And he makes this prayer and he says, Lord, and he confesses, he pleads with the Lord. He, he acknowledges the sin of the nation. He is looking out and he's seeing the dust and he's seeing the, 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 um, the, the dry conditions and the chapped earth. And he's watching as children are sent to the well and they come back empty with no water in their, in, in their pails because there's no water in the well. They, they, uh, he's watching as the people are suffering, as the animals are giving birth and then abandoning um, these, the, the, their young because there's no sustenance, there's no capacity. And you can perhaps understand once again the angst of, in Jeremiah's heart here as he is seeing his land suffer. This is the heart of the minister for, for, for his people that says this should not be. This need not be, and yet it is. So he's pleading with the Lord, and he asks the Lord, he calls the Lord the hope of Israel and the Savior of Israel in the time of trouble, and he asks, why shouldst you be as a, as a stranger or as a man who doesn't know what to do, that is astonished, or who cannot save? Why should you be why, why should you take that character with your people? He's not accusing God of being incapable uh, as a man that doesn't know what to do or as a man who has no capacity to save. He's simply saying, "Lord, why, why should you be like this to your nation? Why does it have to be this way?" And then he cries out to the Lord and he says, "Lord, don't leave us." 
Yet, O Lord, art, yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us. You are still here, and we know that you haven't forsaken, and we call upon thy name. Leave us not. A tremendous prayer of intercession by Jeremiah for the nation, uh, similar to what we would see in Daniel, similar to what we would see uh, through Moses. Uh, Jeremiah is taking it upon himself here to beg for the mercy of God for the land. I love this. You know, we've seen all throughout God's long suffering, God's love. Here, once again, we see Jeremiah. We see the heart of the minister. We read some fiery stuff that Jeremiah has to say. And I mean, we're, we're, we're not done with Jeremiah getting angry at the people. Ministry can sometimes be a little bit of a roller coaster ride where one minute uh, you say, you, you just righteous indignation against the people, and the next minute it's God save them. God save them. Uh, God help them. God help us. And Jeremiah is in one of those moments where he sees the suffering of his people and we can remember how much of a, of, a, of a minister he is. He is a prophet, but he is a minister. He is not a man who gets up every morning and says, how can I tear the people up today? He is a man that loves these people. He is a man that loves this nation. He is, is being... He is suffering as he watches the nation suffer. And so he is stepping outside of himself here a little bit and getting down on his knees and saying, God, I know you're with us. I know you can save. You are the God of salvation. Don't leave us. Don't leave us. The Lord responds. And he responds to the people in verse 10. The Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord unto this people, Thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet. Therefore the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. God acknowledges something. He says, The people have loved to wander. Remember, Jeremiah's appeal is, Don't, don't leave us. We have committed iniquity. We are a wandering people. God says, You're right. You're right, they do love to wander. They have not refrained their feet. In other words, they've not restrained themselves. They have not stopped short. They have, they, they have gone whatever way their heart has desired. And God says, because they won't obey, because they won't control themselves, because they have assumed this false truth, this false narrative, and they are living within this false narrative of their own pride and their own selfishness and their own desires. Due to their lack of repentance, God says, I cannot accept them. I will not accept them. I will remember their iniquity. I will visit their sins. God here, we see, is determined. God here, we see, is resolute. It's such an interesting thing. As we study, there are times where Jeremiah is resolute. God, why, why, why do the wicked prosper, right? And God says mercy. And then here, Jeremiah is mercy, and God says, I'm sorry. There, there can be none. There's this interchange that is amazing going between Jeremiah and the Lord. The, the Lord speaks here of the people. In verses 11 and 12, Jeremiah, or God turns his attention to Jeremiah and Jeremiah's plea and Jeremiah's actions here. And he says this, Then said the Lord unto me, Pray not for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword. 
and by the famine and by the pestilence. This is the third time in this book that God has told Jeremiah not to pray for this people, at least for their good. God states explicitly that when they fast, now we need to understand what God is saying here. God's not saying if they were to mourn in sackcloth and ashes and proclaim a fast among the land, I will not accept it. God is saying when they perform this religious exercise, which is not at all a true expression of repentance, but rather an expression simply of religious traditionalism as a means by which to manipulate me into blessing them when they are far from me, God says, I will not hear that empty cry. When they offer burnt offerings, this being the religious exercise, not at all a true expression of worship unto the Lord, but rather an expression of religious traditionalism and emptiness seeking to manipulate God into blessing them, God says, when they offer those offerings, I will not accept them either. They are living in a false truth. They are living in a dream world where they think that they can just do these things and yet have hearts that are far from me and that there are no consequences. And Jeremiah, I understand your love for them and I understand the struggle that you have as you see their suffering, but I cannot accept this. God says, rather the nation will be consumed and he gives the three means by which they will be consumed by sword, by famine, and by pestilence, by plague. God was not fooled by their external trappings of religion, and he was not fooled. And as he was not fooled, he was determined not to be manipulated. So Jeremiah has cried out to the Lord because he saw his people suffering and said, Lord, don't leave us. God says first to the people, I will not accept you. Then he says to Jeremiah, don't pray for this people for their good. Jeremiah responds to the Lord in verse 13. As the conversation continues, the Bible says, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. So Jeremiah replies, not necessarily with an excuse for the nation, but he does pinpoint the deeper problem here. And this is a hard thing. Perhaps you have felt this very angst in your own hearts. You see people suffering under sin. I, I, you sit across from people in the jail and they're suffering under the weight of their sinful choices. And many of these choices were brought upon them by their parents, by their parents' sinful choices. But then you are not just contending with their sinful choices. You're contending with all the people that, other people that go into that jail and tell them that none of it's their fault, and tell them that they're just a product of society, and tell them that they just have a disease, and tell them that it's all, uh, that, that there's nothing they can do about it, and they are being lied to, and they're being given false hope, and they're being given all of this stuff that people think is helping them, but it's not. And you say, Lord God, it's not all their fault. Certainly they've made the wrong choices, but there are these people that are leading them astray. There are these people that are lying to them because they think that somehow by lying to them, it's going to make them feel better. It's like, it's, it's like the man who's, who's dying on the, on, the, on the wound in the battlefield and you tell him he's going to be all right because you know that there's nothing that can be done for him so at least you make him happy in his final moments, right? By giving him some measure of hope. And that's what they do. They say, well, at least we can lie to these people and give them some measure of hope because there's nothing that we can do for them because they don't 
regard Christ. Jeremiah says these people, they are under the influence of false teachers. They have assured these, the people, these false teachers have assured the people that the sword will not come, though you're telling them that the sword is coming. The people that have assured them that there will be no famine, though they're in a drought right now. The people that have given them a false assurance of peace. Now we'll come to God's response in a moment, but we understand this to be a real problem and one that has always existed. This is really the theme this evening. We've already talked about the priests and the prophets and, and, and the pastors and, and we've already talked about um, false teaching and we, we've, we've hit this several times in Jeremiah. This evening we're talking about truth. This is a problem which has already, always existed. This is a problem which should, breathe, which should stir in us a zeal to understand the truth a tremendous appreciation for the truth and a determination to help people know the truth. Because if you don't tell that person who's been lied to by those, by, by those, those pastors on TV and who have been lied to by those psychologists that they go to and who have been lied to by the society in which they live, if you don't tell them the truth, who is? Who's going to tell them? Who is going to open their eyes to reality if not somebody who has the truth? And if I just sit there with my mouth shut, or if I don't do my due diligence to understand the means, to learn the means by which to properly express truth to people that don't have it, then they're just going to stay in darkness. Thank God. His word is nigh unto us. Thank God that he has not hidden himself behind some human authority or some man-made system or some religion or some institution. Thank God that I don't have to spend years buried in the hills in some form of meditation to, to find the means by which to understand God. Thank God that His Word is right here, that it's in black and white, that I can read it every day, that I can memorize it, that I can study it, that I can know it, and then that I can take this Word to a world that is lost, that is dying, and that is groping for some sort of foundation of truth in the midst of all of the ambiguity that they get from society, in the midst of all of the mess that, that society has found itself in, and I can be that light. I can be the lighthouse in their storm, not because of me, but because of the word that I bring to them. For every person that, that would seem to despise you when you speak the truth, Often in those very hearts, as well as in the hearts of so many others who are listening, there is this kernel of hope that crops up that says, here is someone that is speaking something that I can stand on, that has meaning, that has merit, that has substance. Don't deprive people of that through timidity, through fear, through apathy. Because if we don't tell them who will, if we don't know this book and express this book to those who don't have it or who don't understand it or who have been led astray, then who will? Thank God His Word is nigh. Thank God we can know the Word of God for ourselves. I don't have to trust another man's Word for it and you don't have to trust my Word for it. 
Thank God you have his word. But to that end, while false teachers bear much blame in that they deceive and they confuse and they distort wolves in sheep's clothing, they look like sheep, they sound like sheep. And indeed, the Bible tells us quite clearly that these false teachers will be held accountable. So too, each man, because the word is nigh, because God is faithful, each man is yet accountable for his relationship to the truth. And what we see in the day of Jeremiah is Jeremiah is pleading with God, God, don't leave us. And God is saying, I will not accept this people. And Jeremiah says, but what about the false prophets? But here's the thing. Amidst all the false prophets, there happens to be this one guy in the land named Jeremiah who God has given to them to proclaim truth. And God is not judging them because of all of the false prophets who have gotten up and who have spoken the truth. God is judging them because Jeremiah has been there speaking the truth and they have not listened to him. Because in the midst of all of the error, God has still pierced the darkness with his truth and they have not listened. So God responds to Jeremiah in verses 14 and 16. Then, said, then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not. Neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not. Yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. And they shall have none to bury them, them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. There's an interesting perspective change that I, I don't know if you caught, but I'd like to point it out to you. I'm going to go back one slide to the beginning of verses 14 through 16. Notice the Lord is speaking to Jeremiah at first. And he says, The prophesies prophesy lies in my name, and I sent them not. But God, at, 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 at the end of this verse, changes his context to speak to the nation. Notice what he says. They prophesy unto you. Not thou, right? He's not saying they prophesy unto thee, Jeremiah, second person singular. He's saying they prophesy unto you, the nation. So God is speaking to Jeremiah, but he's saying that they are prophesying unto you, the nation, this false vision. One of the blessings of the King James. He is speaking to Jeremiah, but he says they're prophesying to the nation, to the you, to the second person plural, this false vision. Vision, And so he says that he sent them not. He states plainly that the prophets prophesy lies, that they were not sent by God. And remember, God is not just clarifying this for Jeremiah. Jeremiah knows this. But Jeremiah is writing this down. And he's proclaiming this in the ears of the people. They speak visions, though they've had no visions. They speak of spiritual realities, though those spiritual realities do not exist. They speak not out of truth, but out of deceit in their hearts. Therefore, God says concerning the false prophets who say the sword will not be in the land, who says there will be no famine, he says they will be consumed by sword and famine. They will have to, as we considered this morning, the just, the just deserts of the of the, the nations as they, they shed the blood of the saints for generations. And the angel said, so they will drink blood. 
in that same idea, God says, as the just manifestation of their assurances to the land that they will not die by the sword or die by famine, these people themselves will die by the sword and will die by famine. An ironic judgment. See, God does not play around with truth. And we know particularly from our Second Peter study on Tuesday nights uh, this past summer, and we know from the corresponding passage in Jude that false teachers are dealt with extremely severely by the Lord. He has no patience for them because their flatteries and their assurances and their lies serve to lead others down a path of destruction and their destruction is sure. See, while each man chooses his own way, there is something to be said for the fact that there are those who point the way to destruction who share in that responsibility. The people to whom they prophesy will be judged according to the faithfulness of God regardless of the lies of the false prophets, but the false prophets, they will have their reward as well. And unfortunately, the fact that the people will be judged because they have still disobeyed the Lord makes their lies all the more tragic. Then God commands Jeremiah to give another message to the people. So God spoke to Jeremiah in verses 17 and 18, another message to the people, and he says this, Therefore thou shalt say this word unto them, Let mine eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach, with a very grievous blow. If I go forth into the field... Then behold the slain with the sword. If I enter into the city, then behold them that are sick with famine. Yea, both the prophet and the priest go about into a land that they know not. Jeremiah writes tremendous expressions of grief. God says, tell the people this. Tell the people of your mourning. Tell the people of your sorrow. Tell the people that though you have cried out to them in the truth, they have instead followed the way of error And so my eyes are running with tears day and night. He weeps for the people. He weeps for the innocence that has been broken by the spiritual fornication of those unto whom they're listening. And he looks toward the very doom that these false prophets insist will not happen. And he says, if I go into the field... Jeremiah speaking here, if I walk into the field, I see the slain with the sword. And if I leave the fields and I walk into the city, I see the sick with famine. I don't know if he's seeing that right now. We know that they're going through a drought, which would naturally lead to a famine. Were they in the midst of this or is Jeremiah, is the Lord again giving Jeremiah a divine vision of what is about to come? And so as Jeremiah walks out into the field, what he sees is the vision that the Lord gave him of the slain with the sword. And Jeremiah is weeping because he he, he knows what's about to happen and he can't handle that. So he goes back into the city and as he goes back into the city, he's haunted by the vision that the Lord has given to him of the sick with the famine, perhaps. And he sees the priests and the prophets And he's listening to them encourage the people to ignore these warnings that Jeremiah is writing. And then Jeremiah speaks to the Lord again. 
in verses 19 through 22, and this completes our chapter. Hast thou utterly rejected Judah? Hast thy soul loathed Zion? Why hast thou smitten us and there is no healing for us? We looked for peace and there is no good. And for the time of healing and behold trouble, we acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. Do not abhor us for thy name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. Are there any among the vanity of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Art not thou he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all things, all these things. Jeremiah speaks in an almost muddled mixture of grief and desperation here. Have you then utterly rejected Judah, Lord? Has your soul fully loathed the city of the great king? Is there no healing for your punishment? He again confesses to the Lord. He acknowledges their sin, the sin of the people. There's a desperation here. It's as if Jeremiah is trying with all of his might to intercede for the people. God has already told him, don't do that. It's not worth it. It's not worth your time. Don't pray for their good. And Jeremiah is begging and interceding. He He does what so many ministers do as they watch the people under their ministry choose a wrong choice. We long to stop those wrong choices, but it's not ours to stop. When we see a child making a wrong choice and you long to stop the choice, but it's not ours to stop. We long then to see God's mercy upon them, but we know full well that the faithfulness of God often will demand chastening. And it comes at no pleasure to the minister of God to see it so. It comes as no pleasure to the minister of God that the people wander and then suffer the consequences of such. It comes as no pleasure to the minister of God when the people choose the temporary pleasures of the false teachers over the indelible but uncomfortable truths of God's word. So Jeremiah acknowledges the sins of the people. He's seeking mercy for them. He pleads with God not to abhor the nation, not to forsake them, knowing full well that without God they are nothing and less than nothing. He asks God, have you broken your covenant then? And we know that God has not. But he says, God, no false God can cause rain. Are there any among the Gentile nations Is there any other God that that Jerusalem can turn to to get the rain that they desperately need? When I see the child go out for water and come back with nothing, no other God is going to be able to solve that problem for them. You are the God. You are the God who can give showers, Lord. And so Jeremiah, in the end, kind of just says, Lord, that means all we can do is wait. All we can do is wait on you. Because you've made all these things. So Jeremiah acknowledges that he is waiting on the Lord. He is doing his dead level best to intercede for the people here. Using the collective we, Lord, we are waiting. The nation is not seeking the Lord. But Jeremiah is interceding on their behalf. And we're going to stop there for this week. And it's a bit unfortunate that we are in one sense. Because God actually responds in Jeremiah 15 verse 1. That's the response of God to what Jeremiah has just said. 
don't, don't let the chapter, always read past the chapter break before you decide you're going to stop for the night. Always read past the chapter break because it might just be, maybe you read next and you say, oh, okay, context is, is ended. We're shifting to something else good. Or maybe it is that like Jeremiah 14 to 15, God's answer to what Jeremiah has just said is in chapter 15, verse 1, and you kind of need that. But there is another application and another context that we're going to go into in Jeremiah 15, verses 1 through 10. So that'll be next week's message. I'll, re- I'll, I'll back up a little bit and we'll walk through as we get God's um, response. What we find as we get God's response here is that there's something deeper going on. It's, there, is, there are deeper sins that have plagued the nation for which God cannot pardon. And we're going to see that as God acknowledges um, Jeremiah's words next week. But I kind of leave you hanging this week. But do know that the context does not end there. Do know that God's response to what Jeremiah has just said is found in chapter 15, verse 1. We are going to stop there, though, and bridge into application. Two points of application this evening. And point number one, I began by talking about feelings versus truth, and that's where I want us to go with our application this evening. Point number one, truth is truth, regardless of our perceptions, our emotions, or our experiences. As I mentioned in our introduction, we are living in a society today that has committed itself wholesale to the deceits of the human hearts. Follow your heart our children have been hearing in Disney movies for the last 40 years. Follow your heart. Our children has been hear, have been hearing uh, by their teachers. Our children have been hearing um, by leaders in, in uh, uh, culture, by actors, and in their music, and uh, in their video games, and everything. Follow your heart. Do what feels right. Culture has been pumping it into the hearts and minds of children who are now adults, for a generation and a half, two generations, we could probably trace it well back beyond that. In a few weeks, we're going to come to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, which says this very thing, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And yet we are living in a society which has committed itself wholesale to its own heart. If it feels good, do it. If it makes sense to me, then it's right. But we need to know that emotion, perception, and experience are really terrible foundations for decisions. Terrible foundations for decisions. Things aren't always how they seem, are they? How I feel can change from moment to moment. Quite literally, from moment to moment. I can be in a bad mood and I see a cookie and all of a sudden life is different. Right? If, if, if my emotions are that fleeting, why am I trusting them to make big decisions? Why am I allowing them to dictate me if literally a single cookie can change my day? Is that really all that we have to go off of? Is it really that easy? I mean, is, is that really the foundation upon which we are going to stand? Experience is a useful validator of truth, but can also be manipulated, can't it? By emotion and by perception. Experiences aren't always what they're chalked up to be. 
memory is notoriously unreliable. And experience can be deceptive. The fact of the matter is, whether or not I believe it, whether or not I like it, regardless of how it makes me feel, if something is true, nothing I feel or nothing I think can change that. In our postmodern age, this idea has fallen out of favor. Today, people believe truth is what I say it is. I create my own truth. You'll hear about people, as I mentioned, sharing their truth. It's time to share my truth. What they actually mean by this is that they have an opinion and they think it's right. And it's probably pretty good that they think their opinion is right because if they thought that their opinion was wrong, then that would be a whole other layer of problem, right? If I'm going around sharing opinions that I, I personally think are wrong, um, then, then I've, I'm not only you know, opinionated, but then I'm, I, I don't even know what that would be, right? So I, of, course my of course I think my opinions are right. That's why they're my opinions, but just because I think they're right does not make them right. Just because I feel they're right does not make them right. Just because the way I've acted has been, has been validated by some experience doesn't make it right. I can lie on my taxes and get a lot more money. But that doesn't make it right to lie on my taxes just because the outcome was good. Just because only 0.05% of people get audited and I'm probably not going to get caught. That does not make it objectively right. It keeps it objectively wrong, though the outcome was, from a material perspective, positive. There are certain things that simply are true whether we like them or not. I can ask everyone in this room the same question. I could go from person to person and say, is broccoli good? Is broccoli good? And I will get a number of opinions on the matter. Here's David already vehemently saying yes. I don't know that everyone would have that opinion in here. How I feel about something is by nature an opinion rooted in my experiences and my perceptions and my emotions. I remember the first time I had broccoli. I was at a friend's house. I didn't know. I had never... This leafy green thing. She says, you want one of those? I said, sure. I pop it in my mouth and I remember all the moisture in my mouth just <laughs> gone. Right? And, it's just, oh, and then I remember spitting it into the trash can and running away. There are some other ways I found to prepare broccoli that make it significantly more delicious than just the way I had broccoli on that day. Where are you going with this, Pastor? Okay. So I ask everyone in this room do you like broccoli or is broccoli good? Is broccoli good? No, yes, yes, no, no, yes. Then I go around and I ask everybody in this room, is broccoli good for you? And I would expect, if everyone gives an honest answer and we're not talking about, you know, pesticides and whatnot, if we're talking about just like broccoli for what it is, then the answer is going to be objective, right? Regardless of how you feel about broccoli, broccoli is, from an objective sense, outside of the many variables that we could bring into it, good for you. Because the nutritional value of broccoli doesn't change based upon what your taste buds tell you about broccoli. We see in this passage a statement regarding these false prophets. They tell the land that there will be no sword coming. They tell the people there will be no famine extending in the land. 
And while they speak these great words, and while those, no, those words were no doubt very convincingly shared, and while those words no doubt were stated with tremendous conviction, and while those words no doubt were full of the most optimistic, optimistic senses of compassion, and those false teachers would go home to their wives and they'd say, you know what, honey? I put a smile on someone's face today because they're struggling through this drought and I told them, it's going to end soon. You're going to be fine. And Jeremiah was there and he was talking about swords and people dying again. And so I went up to those people and I told them, don't worry about him. He's just crazy. And I, I made them smile today. And I'm so happy that I got to put some smiles on people's faces. And though all of those experiences and perceptions and emotions were there, it doesn't change the fact that their words were wrong. None of these words, none of this optimism, no emotional state of the people was going to change the fact that God's judgment was coming. This is the same spirit of the age. A spirit of convincing lies couched in the language of tolerance, couched in the language of understanding, couched in the language of compassion that drives discourse today. If I don't believe that, that a person should be able to say that he, he is a woman just because he feels like a woman, then all of a sudden I'm not compassionate anymore. I'm not empathetic. I have no regard for them, for their feelings, for their needs. If I don't feel as though people should allowed, be allowed to cross our border illegally wholesale, all of a sudden I'm not compassionate. All of a sudden I have no sympathy. I have no empathy for the human plight and the human condition. Do you see the, 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 the wrong thinking there? where they are asking me to abandon truths for the sake of feelings. Jeremiah, do you, you, can you read into Jeremiah's writing here the angst and the love he has for his people? Could anyone doubt in reading Jeremiah chapter 14 that he deeply loves his people? He is begging God to restore them. And yet for all of that, he knows as he knows anything that he must tell them the truth and it didn't, doesn't make him an uncompassionate man and it doesn't change the sympathy and the empathy and the love that he has for his people it just is it is what it is truth is truth we have to live in the world as it exists and the world as it exists is told to us by God whether we speak of political discourse or cultural discourse or pseudoscientific discourse or religious discourse, in an age where information has no gatekeeper, where anyone and everyone can put their most convincing, emotionally charged, and conviction-driven ideas and opinions and thoughts out where anyone can reach them, we must seek an anchor, something that gives us a standard by which we can actually judge things. Because if we're just driven by how emotionally convincing a person is, if we're just driven by how passionate a person is, if we believe the person who simply is the loudest in the room, then we're in trouble. We're in trouble as a nation. We're in trouble as a church. We're in trouble as families. We're in trouble as individuals. 
We must seek to an anchor that gives us the context to keep us grounded, lest we get caught up in the mess and divert ourselves from actual, capital T, truth. So how do we guard ourselves against such deceptions? Well, we all know that answer. We need to find the source of truth. And that's not going to be the news, I can guarantee you that. No matter which channel it's on or what website it's on. It's not going to be YouTube. It's not going to be your parents, objectively. And it's not going to be your pastor, objectively. Any of these can be a source of truth, but only to the extent that that information source aligns with this information source. This is our anchor. We don't always agree on exactly what that anchor says all the time. And that's okay. But if we can all agree that this is the anchor, that this is the source, that this is the foundation, then there is no doubt that God can make up the difference. So what do we do in a society that seeks to redefine truth, redefine morality, redefine authority, redefine obedience, redefine marriage, redefine gender, redefine everything? What do we do? And let me make something clear. I'm not talking about a society that is changing its subjective opinions. Societies change all the time. Objective opinions change all the time. Things that were in were out, right? We can see this in fashion. What people once thought was really trendy is now hideous. And what people thought was hideous is now trendy. And in another 10 years, it's going to just flop again because the industry has to keep making money, so they have to keep changing the trends, right? So the, the, the trends, they come, and the trends, they go, and the music trends, they come, and the music trends, they go. Uh, opinions are changing all the time. What is good to society today might be out of favor tomorrow. And in, in the sense of objective opinions, that can be okay. I mean, that, that's fine. Societies change. People change. There have even been tremendous advances in society as it relates to certain opinions. The abolition of slavery was a great day for this country, for society. Opinions changed dramatically. Through the civil rights movement, opinions changed dramatically. These are good things. When I speak of uh, you know, our, our society today, once again, it's trending toward healthier foods, cleaner water, cleaner air, maybe for all the wrong reasons, but these are good trends, right? These are good opinions. The fact that society wants cleaner air, cleaner water, healthier foods, uh, that's, that's a good thing. But when I speak of a society redefining truth, I'm speaking of not opinions and trends which have rooted themselves in society, but rather the attempts by society to take that which is designed by God those things which God has decreed, which are part of the standard operating procedure of how God has created the world, upon which God testifies, and they take those and they seek to change them. That's what I'm talking about here. What do we do in a society that seeks to redefine truth? As Christians, we should not be afraid of change. We ought not hate progress. This is something that is often levied upon believers 
that we are, that we hate change, that we hate progress. And, you know, in, in some senses, change can be hard for people that stand upon traditions and stand upon the examples of their fathers and, and their grandfathers and such. And, and that's understandable. But we, we aren't afraid of that. We should not be afraid of change. As a matter of fact, we should welcome progress. What we don't welcome is regress. We don't welcome an abandonment of the principles of God's word back to a state of pagan indifference. We don't welcome the elevation of rebellion against the very essence of the design of God that he has established. And in this, we are not being stodgy. We are not being old-fashioned. Nor are we simply resting in the bliss of our own ignorance that times are changing and we just don't want to change with the times. This is not an idea that opinions are changing and we are not moving with opinions. This is a state where people are trying to change the very fact, trying to pretend as though what is, is not, and what is not, is. That is not you being stodgy. That is not just you being old-fashioned. That is not just you refusing to change with the times. No matter how much people don't want to believe it, two plus two equals four, right? And the person that stands upon two plus two equals four, no matter how many people are saying, you're just old-fashioned. You just don't get it. You're just being stodgy with your narrow definitions and closed mind. No matter how often people can charge you with those things, it doesn't change the fact that you are on the right side of truth. Don't allow people to play this this game with you in your heart or in your mind where they try to twist your determination to stand upon the truths of God's word and, and, and laud it in the same category as you just not wanting to change anything not being willing to adapt or not being willing to, to see anything change. You just want to keep us in the 1800s. You just want to keep us without technology. You just want to keep us without anything. Well, no, that's, no. I just don't want to say that two plus two is five because it never will be. It never has been. It never will be. So, so, so stop trying to tell me it should be. And I'm not going to accept that. If God's word has said it is true, this is, this is an area where it is not progressive to change it. It's rebellious, but it's not progressive. It's regressive. It's taking the, the owner's manual and saying, we don't need this anymore. There's nothing about that that's, that's reasonable. There's nothing about that that's logical. That's crazy. It's crazy. So we resist these redefinitions not on principle, not because we're traditionalists. We resist them because they are untrue, because there is such thing as truth. God has told us what it is, and if it's not true, I'm not going to live in the dream world with you. I'm not going to play games with you. And not only am I not going to play games with you because it's silly and immature and not conducive to reality, but because when it comes to the truths of God's word, when it comes to the, the, the spiritual truths, to play that game with you, to allow you without any opposition to live in your dream world, to allow people without any, without, without any statement on my end to think that two plus two equals five, 
is to allow them to maintain them to live in a fantasy that will see them in hell. That will see them go to hell. We're not just playing with people who have who are experimenting with silly notions and fantasies outside of the bounds of truth. We are playing with the souls of people. We are seeing souls who fundamentally are no longer convinced that there can be anything that is true. And if we aren't there to tell them to be the rational person in the room that says there is truth, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about beating them over the head with your Bible. I'm not talking about being unkind and, and, and angry and, and violent or, or vicious or condescending or judgmental. I'm not talking about that. I'm simply saying, if somebody's living in a dream world and I don't at least tell them that they're living in a dream world, I do them a disservice. It's up to them to decide whether or not they want to stay there in fantasy land believing that nothing is true, believing that, that we all just drift through life defining our own truth, that, that's, that's their business. But if I don't at least say something, what does that say about me? That I'm willing to allow them to remain in that state without some call to reality. We know exactly what God told the people on this day in Jeremiah 14. And it didn't matter what all those false prophets had said. What was true was true. And it doesn't matter if every politician and every cultural icon and every scientist and every pastor in the land is saying something is true that's not. If it doesn't line up with what God has said, it simply isn't true. It doesn't matter how passionate they get doesn't matter how many tears they shed over, over their, their passionate pleas to, to, to fantasy land. If it's, if it's contrary to what God's word has said, it's not true. And it's not sympathetic, empathetic, or kind to simply stand there and let them live in their fantasy without some call to reality. It doesn't matter how convinced how emotional, how we, well-meaning, and how compassionate we are in our error. Error is error. And it will be accompanied by the consequences of error if we don't come out of error. The prophets in Jeremiah's day said the sword would not come and famine would not come, but that did not stop the sword from coming, nor did it stop the famine from coming. No amount of wishful thinking can stop the truth from being true. Point number two. If some biblical truth is not a reality in your life, there is something wrong. So in Jeremiah 14, there was a famine in the land. This famine was proof positive on the authority of God's word. We read it in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that there was something terribly wrong in the land. It was, the famine was not supposed to happen. Deuteronomy 28 said it was not supposed to happen unless the nation was disobeying God's covenant, which means at the least... What the people could know full well is that they were, in fact, somehow and in some way, disobeying God's covenant. A plus, you know, there's just, 
just A, B, C, right? This is, this is just connect the dots. And I want to draw a parallel to this in our lives this evening. God's Word tells us various elements of what it means when we are rightly related to God. The Christian that is rightly related to God has learned in whatsoever state he is therewith to be content. The Christian who is rightly related to God is exhibiting nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Now, as I, as I go through this list, please don't take it too dogmatically. I'm not saying that at all times, all of the, we, We're all growing, right? We're all growing. I'm not saying that, that the Christian that's rightly related to God is a perfect person. We are growing in this. But the Christian that is rightly related to God is learning these lessons, is being called toward these lessons, is related to these lessons. The Christian that is rightly related to God, that loves God with all his heart and soul and might, is also a Christian that loves his neighbor as himself. This is, this is the call. This Christian cares deeply about the household of faith, the brothers and sisters in Christ. These are characteristics of a Christian who is rightly related to God as that Christian grows in grace and in the knowledge of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as believers, as I've mentioned, we all fail at these characteristics at at various times. We all have bad days. We all have seasons of rebellion. But the fact is, the reason why we know that they are bad days Right? The reason why I can say I had a bad day spiritually or a bad week spiritually, the reason why we can know that there are seasons of rebellion in our lives is because in these times of selfishness or pride or self-righteousness or whatever it might be, we grieve the Spirit of God. We fail to manifest not just in our actions but in our hearts and minds the characteristics of the Spirit of God. We lack contentment. We lack submission. We lack obedience. We lack joy. We lack faith. We lack peace. And it is the lack of these things in our lives so obvious because the results of the ministry of the Spirit of God are not in us, whereby we know that we had a bad day, right? I had a bad day because I lacked the peace of God. I had a bad day because I lacked contentment. I had a bad day because I lacked submission. I had a bad day because I lacked joy. And those are supposed to be there. This is, this is what the Bible says. Jeremiah was pointing to the fact that this drought in the land was proof positive that there was something wrong in the hearts of the nation and their relationship with God. And we can and indeed ought to use the spiritual droughts in our own lives in the same manner. If you're living through some spiritual drought, don't just say, I'm living through a spiritual drought. Don't just think, okay, it's just a spiritual drought. Recognize that if there's a spiritual drought in your life, that means that there's something wrong. Right? Jeremiah on this day said, look, there's a drought. Drought, Deuteronomy 28, you're not supposed to have drought. There's something wrong, Judah. If you're exhibiting the characteristics of the flesh and you had a bad day or you've had a bad week or you've had a bad month or you've had a bad year, Look, those things happen. I'm not here to beat you over the head with your own failures. I could beat myself over the head with twice as many as any of you, I'm sure. But what I am here to say is that we do ourselves a disservice if we don't live within the the context of truth. And the truth is, as it relates to the Christian life, 
That if we're not experiencing the things that the Bible says the Christian life is designed to show us, the, the context within the Christian life as it is supposed to exist, then that means that there's something wrong. Are you living in the contentment of Christ or are you full of discontentment? Are you living in the joy of Christ or is sorrow and depression and melancholy your general manner of living? Are you living in the peace of God or are you experiencing constant anxiety and fear? Are you living in faith or do you live in worry and in uncertainty? Are you living in long-suffering impatience or are you living in impatience? Are you living in submission or are you living in rebellion? Life isn't easy and none of us is perfect. But the day in, day out tone and direction of our lives is an indicator of how we're doing as it relates to our context with Christ. And simply put, if you're not experiencing the general spiritual promises of which the Word of God is quite clear, then it's not because God has failed you. It's not because God has moved. It's not because there's something... It's not because your experiences, your feelings, and your perceptions need to redefine truth as it relates to how you should relate to God. It's that truth is what it always has been. God is what He always has been. And somewhere along the line, you aren't aligning with that. Somewhere along the line, there's a disconnect that is short-circuiting the power of the Spirit of God in your life to manifest something that's supposed to be manifest. But it can be made spiritually right. Just as God called the nation to reorient itself and so to find mercy, so too can we. Have you found yourself walking in rebellion to some authority, boss, husband, parent, pastor? There's a solution to that, right? And the solution is just as true. There's something wrong if you're walking in rebellion. The solution is, is there. It's, it's submit. Humble yourself. Are you walking in anxiety? Well, there's a solution to that. Casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Are you living and walking in fear? There's a solution to that. Trust. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Are you walking in discontentment? Get your eyes off of yourself and put them on Christ. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am there to be content. I know both how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ. Which strengtheneth me. What does Paul say? I turn my eyes to Christ and I find contentment. Get your eyes off yourself. You're living in self-pity. The solution to the failure of spiritual blessings to manifest themselves in our lives has never been a complicated one. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy because we're so terribly human. Isn't that kind of a bummer? We're so human. But that doesn't mean it's complicated. Now, I'm not here to tell you that by choosing to yield to Christ that this is an easy thing. If it were, I wouldn't have to stand here and talk about it. 
right? If it were easy. You wouldn't have to have a pastor who gets up and, and takes the Word of God and seeks to work us through it. We wouldn't need all of that if it were easy. God wouldn't have to write such a thick book to tell it to us if it were easy. But I am here to tell you that no one has ever chosen to yield to Christ as difficult as it is, as humbling as it is, as frustrating as it might seem, no one has ever chosen to yield to Christ as uncomfortable as it may be, as contrary to our feelings, as contrary to our emotions, maybe even as contrary to what you would call your experiences as it might be. No one has ever chosen to do it, counterintuitive from a human standpoint, though it may be, who has ever regretted it. Because that is where truth is found. We can live in our fantasy land of spiritual rebellion and wonder why it is things aren't happening that the Bible says are supposed to happen. Or we can go to the source of truth. We can stand upon our anchor. We can figure out what the Bible has to say and we can orient ourselves to it. And on the authority of God's word, you will not regret it. You, you cannot regret it. For it is truth. To this end, if there is some glaring difference between you and a biblical truth, between the Christian life, your life, and, and biblical truth, you don't have to wonder what's going on. You don't have to just assume that those promises must be for other Christians, but not for you. Find out what's wrong. Find out why it is that the promises of the Word of God are not manifesting themselves in your life and then align yourself. Again, sounds easy. I'm not saying it's easy. Get help if you need. Get accountability if you need. Judah could know without exception cause and effect. Drought in the land, not walking in the covenant of God. Had to be this way. Deuteronomy 28 said it had to be this way. God is faithful. God is anything but arbitrary. God is still faithful, and God is still not arbitrary. And if the spiritual fruit of the Christian life is missing in you, if you're feeling like there's a spiritual drought in your heart, that you are in a parched spiritual wilderness, there is something wrong, but it doesn't have to stay that way. You're not without options. Flee to Christ. Get rightly adjusted to the Lord. This is our birthright in Christ, and it is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.